This morning's text, bad news first. We all start with the bad news, right? We start with the bad news of the gospel, and I'm going to start with the bad news this morning that the text is long. It's uh, two and a half chapters, but we're going to read through it, and then we're going to go back and, and just cover some of the highlights and then say, hey, this, what does this beautiful narrative have to do with us? What, how, does, how does a story that happened so long ago, what does that mean for me today? And so we want to do that, um, and, and we're going to read through starting Acts 22, verse 30. So I would encourage you, go ahead, grab a Bible, because there's going to be about 10 minutes where you can either stare at me as I'm reading, or you can read along with it. So let's do that together, right? Um, let's read it. So if, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible, not the pew. I always want to say the pew, but it's on the bench next to you. And you can grab that, make it your own, right? As we're going through, um, if you see something that you're like, man, I, I wish we could spend a little time there, go ahead, highlight it, put a star by it, underline it, whatever it is that you need to do, write a note in the margin so that you can circle back to that this week and maybe in, in, in community or maybe in, in discipleship or one-on-one or triad or somewhere, you can ask those questions because we don't want to leave those questions unasked. Right? We've been given this word, and it's sweet, and it's a good gift. And, and because it's a longer passage, I'm not going to hit everything. So I want you to follow along um, as we go about that this morning. For most of the spring, we have uh, walked through the second half of Acts. Um, we've, we started last fall going through our, our sermon series called Witnesses, and we've looked at what it is that God's doing in the book of Acts as he's establishing his church Right? And he's doing it in some supernatural ways. He's doing it in some ordinary means of grace ways. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. He's using some, uh, some people that we would probably say are really good people and some people that we're, we would say are not so good people. And yet we, we understand because of Paul's understanding of the gospel and the, the, Jesus' definition of the gospel that we're all sinners, right? And so even those people that we think are good, they need the same grace that we need. So this morning we're going to continue looking at uh, the Apostle Paul's life. We're looking at what happened on his missionary journeys and how God used those journeys and his, his identity as a church planner to spread the gospel throughout the world. You see, Paul, like the rest of the apostles and disciples and Acts, serves as a witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And actually, you and I have been given that same commission today. Acts 1.8, right? It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Last week, we looked at Paul's gospel identity. And we saw his unique identities, right? Those identities that were individual to him. His, his, him being a Jew. Him being able to speak Greek. Him being a Roman citizen, right? Him being well-educated, zealous for the law. Those types of things. Those were his identities. And yet he leveraged all of those identities for his greatest identity, which was a witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ as a worshiper. And so this, we're going to continue there because we saw how he identified with the crowd that was wanting to kill him. And he was able to kind of relate to them and, and show that, hey, he was on the wrong side. He persecuted Jesus Christ just like they were persecuting him and called him out as sinners. And then he declared how that by grace he's been saved, right? We, we lean into that grace and that same grace was sufficient for even these riot, this crowd that was rioting in the moment. And he was sent on mission to the Gentiles. My prayer is that this week we've all had a little bit of an identity crisis. Maybe you've, you've been experiencing, hey, what have I been building up 
what identity have I leaned into more than my greatest identity, which is the son or daughter of Jesus, right? We all have those identities, and most of the time they're really good things, and we just let them kind of run. We let them become the main thing. My identity as a, as a husband, right, or my identity as a father, or my identity is, and I, I use this one all the time, but my identity as a baseball coach. What am, what am I doing there where I'm promoting those identities instead of resting in my identity as a worshiper and follower of Jesus Christ? So this morning we get to continue. Um, we'll look at where Paul, he's still in prison. He's going to be in prison for a while. Uh, and he's under Roman guard. And remember last week we had just confronted the Roman tribune Lysias with the fact that Paul was a, a Roman citizen. And that's where we left off at the uh, end of chapter, towards the end of chapter 22. So pick it up, chapter 22, verse 30. Please follow along as I read and we'll read together. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of this ambush, heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. 
also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down, and with some elders and spokesmen, and a spokesman, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy such much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms have been, are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to, to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I, also, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man, Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came down with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. 
Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they argued and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued his, in his defense, neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. Um, we thank you for the, the story that you tell in your word, a story of, of creation, of fall and redemption. God, of reconciliation, of glory, your glory. God, and so this morning we stand and, we, and we, we're looking at just a small portion of your word, and yet... There's so much in here, God, and so we pray that, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear um, the truth of your word, Lord. I pray that we would believe that this actually happened, that we would believe that uh, you wrote it down for us to hear and to know so that we could have a greater understanding of who you are, of your grace, of your compassion, of your justice, of your mercy, of your righteousness. Lord, I pray for the uh, com- for the partners that are uh, teaching in CP Kids, I pray that they would be encouraged, that they would believe your word to be true, and that out of that belief they would point the kids to that same truth. Um, pray for those that are in the nursery, Lord, that are encouraging and, and loving the children there. Pray that they would just be conduits of your love and your grace. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that, that you stirred it in our hearts to be here. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, that was a long one, I told you. So there we go. We've got four kind of arcing storylines here. Um, the first one is, is Paul before the council, before the Sanhedrin. And that, that's in 2230 through 2311. And then the, the next point is the Lord's encouragement to Paul, right? And we see that. In 2311. And then there's this plot to kill Paul, right? And God's sovereign move to rescue him. And then there's Paul before the governors, Felix and Festus. So I want to, want to touch base on those four things and then, then ask the question of what does that mean for us today? So Paul before the council in the Sanhedrin. Paul's presented and, and, um, we need to remember what's happened since Paul came to Jerusalem, right? It's, it's only been 12 days. He said that in his narrative, in his defense. It's only been 12 days since he's been in Jerusalem. He was sent uh, to the church leaders, right? So he met with James and some of the other church leaders, and then he went to the temple, 
And he offered a sacrifice that he had been collecting on his travels, uh, an offering there. And he took his gift to the temple, and then he was beaten almost to death, right? Where he could, somehow he has this great speech afterwards where he speaks to the people and there's a hush, but he had just been beaten almost senseless where they had to carry him out. And so we see the hand of God moving there too. And we've seen several interactions with this uh, Roman tribune, this Lysias. And so that's where we're at in the story. Now he's being presented before those same Jews who are continuing in their accusations. He's stating his innocence and his conscience when we, when we see it in um, <clears throat> verse 23, verse 1, or chapter 23, verse 1. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And so even, even saying that, for him to be able to say that has to be because God has given him that confidence. Right? We, we look at our lives and we're like, man, I've, there have been some things that I've, that I've messed up that I haven't done right. And yet God is redeeming all of those things. And so we can live as, uh, as good citizens. Right? We can live these upright lives by the grace of God. And so he, that draws a reaction. When we, when we stand up and we say, hey, in good conscience, I, I believe that God is... God is doing something in my life, and I can stand before him blameless. There's going to be people that want to cast blame, and so that's what this Ananias does. And Ananias, uh, from some of my studies, is known as this really cruel, uh, violent man. And so we see it in this story, right? Paul says that he's innocent, and Ananias tells the guy next to him to hit him in the mouth. And so then Paul reacts, and, and there's some uh, there's some different takes on this, whether he's reacting out of, frustration and anger, or whether he's reacting uh, in, a, in a way that's humble um, and yet calling the, the high priest to righteousness. But either way, at the end of this, we're seeing that there's this altercation and there's a rebuttal of Paul and, and a submissiveness that he says, you know, I wouldn't, um, in verse, sorry, verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so all of this is, is setting us up for Paul needing grace, right? His circumstances are saying, hey, you need a savior, you need help. His attitude may be saying, hey, you need grace because you're acting in some ways that, that are just the piling on of abuse where he feels like his friends are turning against him, the people are trying to kill him. This group of accusers is, is tracking him down wherever he goes, so he's feeling the weight of all of these things, and he needs grace. And then we see, verse 6 through 12, that there's, uh, there's a, sub, a subversiveness that he uses, where he, he, he realizes that these two people are divided um, on... The, the belief in the resurrection of the dead. And so he says, I'm a, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? And so he's claiming that he believes in the resurrection of the dead. And that actually starts this whole fight between these two people that were uh, in cahoots against him. But now because of his statement of the resurrection of the dead, they actually divide and it becomes a riot. And then the, the um, tribune comes in again and takes him out of that place. So we're seeing the narrative. We know that Paul is, is, is desperately in need of grace. And what happens, we see it in chapter 23, verse 11. 
Jesus comes, the Lord reveals himself to Paul again. And if you've read, if you've been tracking with us through the whole story of Acts, there have been several times where God has revealed himself either uh, in a vision or a trance or as an angel or just a spoken word to Paul, and he's been encouraged and built up in those moments. We saw it in chapter 16 where there was a, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia who says, come to me. And so Paul continues walking in obedience to what God is calling him to. We saw it in chapter 18 where there's... Um, there's an encouragement that's spoken to him in Corinth. We saw it in uh, just last week in chapter 22 that he goes into a trance, right? And, and in that trance, 22.17, it says, um, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. So that was during his first conversion. Right after his conversion, he had been encouraged by the Holy Spirit and then in verse or in chapter 27 we're going to see that he's on the he's on a ship heading towards Rome and an angel is sent to him to encourage him. So Paul has these moments of encouragement where the Lord manifests his presence whether it's by his voice or by his presence to encourage Paul. It says in 23:11 the following night the Lord stood by him and said take courage for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. So you must testify also in Rome. Why is this such an encouragement to him? Well, there's no better encouragement simply than presence. Often when we're in our, when we're in our lowest, when we're frustrated, when we're grieving, just the simple presence of a brother can be a huge encouragement. And we have the presence of the Lord. And so God manifests his presence for Paul. And what an encouragement that is. And then the first words are, take courage. Not conjure it up yourself, but take it as a gift that I'm giving to you because, because only God can provide that encouragement and that, that boldness, that strength. And he says um, that you know whose work and witness you are about. Right? That's the knowledge that, that Paul has, is the understanding that God is the one speaking to him. He's the one that's calling him to Rome. It's his story that Paul is participating in. And then he's, then he's given that nugget. You will testify in Rome. So as we look over the next, just in this portion, and then in the next two chapters after that, Paul is headed to Rome, and he has this confidence because he's been told by the Lord he's going to go to Rome. And so they can do whatever they, they can bring whatever charges they want. They can beat him. He can be shipwrecked. All of these things can happen, but his trust and his faith is in the promise of God. He knows where he's going. And he knows who's taking him there. The third uh, arc of, of the story that we're going to see, and, and I found this one really encouraging, is this plot to kill Paul and God's rescue. There's, these men would be considered terrorists. Um, there's 40, 40-ish of them, and they have gathered together, and they said, hey, we're going to kill Paul, and not one of us is going to eat or drink anything until it happens. And they go and they get the... the the blessing of the council and of the elders to, for this to happen. And they're, they're going to pursue Paul and kill him. Do they, are they doing this because they hate him? I don't think so. I think they're doing this because they hate his gospel. They hate what he's preaching. If he would just be quiet, he would be okay, but he hasn't been quiet ever. He continues to proclaim and to leverage everything for the proclamation of the gospel. 
And really what, what they found most offensive was that God would now go to the Gentiles. Um, remember in the, in the riot, Paul was implicating that they were, they were just as wrong as he was in the persecution of Jesus. And yet it wasn't until they got to the part where he says, and now he sent me to the Gentiles that they really lost it again. It was a hush until that moment. And then they, then they go and they try to beat him again. And this, the Roman guards have to take him out and save him. So we have this story um, of this plot to kill Paul. And then we see how God rescues him. God sovereignly rescues him through, his, through a nephew, right? It says his sister's son. And we don't know. We're not given. How did he hear about it? What happened? We just know that somehow he got this information. He took it to Paul. Paul, taking that information, passed it to, uh, told him to go tell the tribune and tells the centurion to take this kid and go tell the tribune. And why did the centurion listen to Paul? We don't know, but we see the sovereign hand of God moving through all of these things. And so by normal everyday interactions, right, everyday relationships, the word is getting to the centurion. And then the centurion hears this, and he responds, or the tribune hears this, and he responds in a way that he gathers the troops and he gets Paul out of there in a hurry. I mean, this is all, when we think about it, we think, well, what else is the tribune going to do? Is he going to let this guy get killed on his watch? No, he's going to respond in a way that would protect him. And so it seems like it's kind of the normal interactions of people in everyday life, and yet we see the hand of God moving Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea on to Rome. It'd be easy to chalk us up to circumstance. But God is using the wills of individuals and their choices and their decisions in a way that is moving his story and his plot along. Reminds us uh, of our time last year um, in the book of Esther, and, and I was reading a commentary by Tony Morita in Exalting Jesus in Acts, and, and his quote was this, uh, The names of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit aren't mentioned in these verses. It's a notable absence that reminds me of the book of Esther. In that book, too, the name of God is missing, but his fingerprints are everywhere within the story. God works in various ways to accomplish his purposes, even when we can't see him. In this passage, the same Lord who promised that Paul would get to Rome works through people and circumstances to accomplish his agenda. He continues saying, we sometimes think God isn't working when we don't see visible signs of of his sovereignty, but never mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God. His quiet, invisible hand is always at work. I don't know about you, but even as I was reading that, I was thinking about the book of Esther and, and last week and what a joy, or last year and what a joy that was to see that, that God's never, never mentioned in the book. And yet we saw his hand saving his people and we see his hand right now carrying Paul from place to place, ultimately to Rome. And everywhere he goes, he's declaring the gospel and he's bold. Because he knows that identity that he has in Christ. And so this morning we, we get to see it, be reminded of that that same identity is ours this morning of who we are in Christ. God delivers Paul from a plot to kill him and preserves his life for his glory, for God's glory, not for Paul's glory. All of this is so that God will be made much of. Paul has a confidence because he knows he's going to Rome. 
He said, he, he's not worried about it. He probably hears it from the boy, and, and he, he's just trying to, what, what can I do? What would be a normal response? Well, we'll tell the centurion. And then he trusts that God's in control. He's done everything that he can. And God uses all of these things to work out his sovereign plan of salvation for Paul in, in this moment. The last chapter and a half, uh, chapter 24 and the first part of 25, Paul is brought uh, to Caesarea and he stands before the governor Felix and he's given, he gives an account. And these religious accusers, they follow him all the way there. And they're, they're really uh, bent on charging him with everything that they can. You see, they've tried a riot. They tried to stir a riot in Jerusalem. Um, but before that, they tried to stir a riot in every town and city that he was going into on, on his missionary journey. So they've failed at that. And they've tried getting the Romans to kill him. They've tried to bring up charges, hoping that the Romans would prosecute him and, and sentence him to death, and that hasn't worked. And they tried to assassinate him, and that didn't work. And so now we see that they're going to go and they're going to try to prosecute him again in the court of Felix. Um, and they bring in this professional lawyer, Tertullus. Um, we see that he is, he's a good lawyer, right? He starts with a little bit, little bit of flattery in verse 24, chapter, the second half of two. He says, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, mo- most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. It's fluff if you ever heard it, right? That's trying to stir somebody up, hoping that you're going to get, on, get, get their favor. Um, and we also, if we read into the commentaries, we see that Felix really wasn't this great leader. <laughs> he was actually pretty poor at managing uh, Caesarea and, and, and the Jews and what was going on, and he had tons of issues. And so all of this is not true, but it's this flattery that they're trying to stir up so that they can get a right proclamation for them. And so they, they, they bring, Tertullus brings these four accusations against Paul. And there are that he's a plague, that he's a riot starter, that he's part of the sect of the Nazarenes, and that he's a profaner of the temple. And Paul declares that he's innocent of all those charges. In verse 10, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went out to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. And neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So he denies the he denies three of the four. He says, "Hey, I, I'm innocent. I didn't. I'm not a plague. I haven't started any riots. They actually started the riots." He says, "I didn't profane the temple. I went there to offer the the gift and the offering that I collected throughout all of my travels." He says, "But this one thing that you said." But this I confess to you, verse 14, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. He doesn't deny that that's true. And it all stems from his belief in the resurrection. And his belief in the resurrection is a direct, uh, a direct result of his 
encounter with the risen Savior on the road to Damascus. And we've seen him go back time and time again to declare that that is my identity. That is who I am. I was a, I was a persecutor of Jesus, and yet he confronted me, and he said, and he, and he offered me grace, and he sent me. Not only did he just finish what and cleanse me and offer me grace, but now he's invited me into participating in the proclamation of this story, this great story. Right? And Paul's gone there, and he's going to go there again. We'll see it next week when he goes before Agrippa. And so this is, this is the identity that he has and that he rests in and that he continues to declare to Felix, and then he declares it to Festus when Festus uh, takes over for Felix. And one of the cool things of a small portion here is that Felix dismisses him, but he continues this discussion privately, right? He grabs his wife, and they come, and they speak to Paul. And Paul has conversations with him, and it says that he was there for two years. And so over that period of time, these conversations continue to happen. And so the proclamation that Paul makes in public is the same proclamation that he makes in private. The the greater... You know, the Sunday morning us is the same us on Monday morning when we're dreading the start to another week, right? Are we, are we living, we have the grace that's been shown to us that we can do this, that we can both proclaim on a, on a grander scale and we can proclaim the same gospel on an intimate one-on-one scale. And it starts with us. It starts with proclaiming that gospel to ourselves, reminding, remembering who we are in Christ. And so we see that, um, in verse 24 of chapter 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the crux of the story. It's this belief that Christ has risen from the dead, and that if he has risen from the dead, then everything else that is said about him is true, and he will come back one day, and he will set all things right. And so we have this Savior that we can trust and believe in. And Felix was listening until he got to the point where he started talking about <clears throat> righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. And Felix said, oh, that's enough. <laughs> Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And isn't that a story of, of a lot of our lives? Like we want, to, we want to tell the good part about how there's grace that's sufficient, but we have to recognize that there's a bad part, that we, we have a coming judgment. There is a judgment for our sin. It was laid on Christ. But it's, it doesn't change the fact that, that a just king declares us guilty before him. And it's when we get to that point often in our conversations with our friends that we love and care about. And we have to say, listen, you're a sinner in need of grace. Just like me. I'm a sinner in need of grace. But you got to hear that. And Felix walks away. And he leaves at that point. And he comes back, but the whole coming back that he does is trying to get a bribe, trying to get Paul to buy his way out of jail. But he can't accept the judgment. And often that's, that's where we wrestle. That's where we struggle. That's where we struggle in telling our friends because it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound like good news when you just present that. But we, do, we go beyond that and we say, yes. You deserve judgment, and there is, a, there is one who has come and suffered the judgment in your place. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we've been given this same declaration that's both public and that's in, in private. 
Um, and then chapter 25, Festus takes over the, the governorship from Felix after two years. They both wanted to do favors for the Jews, so they know where they live. Right? They, know, they know where they're at. They're not in Rome. They're in one of these outer provinces of Rome, and they know who the, who the ruling people are there, and they're the Jews. And so several times it says that they wanted to find, wanting to do a favor for the Jews. And so that's the whole reason that Paul's kept in jail. They haven't found anything worthy of keeping him in jail, and yet he's still there. He's still under guard. And if you're Paul, you're questioning, man, how, does, how is this true? But Paul's resting in the sovereign grace of our Lord and, and, and the knowledge that he's going to go to Rome. And so he can be confident in that. And then last, we just want to see Paul's plea that he continues to, to claim his innocence. And yet, he, even in claiming that innocence, he recognizes that God is just and is good in allowing him to stay where he is in prison. Verse 8 of chapter 25, Paul argued his defense. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. You'd think he'd be tired of saying this by, the, by now. And yet he continues to make that declaration. And it's a right and true declaration. And yet he doesn't demand that even though it is a right and true declaration, that he has to be, um, that those people are going to do the right thing. He trusts that God does the right thing. Verse 10 and 11, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus says, then to Caesar you will go. And, and that's it. That's the story, right? That's the narrative. And we see that in the beginning... Jesus himself shows up and tells Paul, you're going to Rome, you're going to testify for me in Rome. And then we see at the end of this passage that, that Festus also says, well then, to Caesar you're going to go. And we've seen the sovereignty of God's hand move throughout this story. It's a compelling story, but your question may be, how does that apply to me? Well, some of the principles that we have here is, is the first one is that God is sovereign and he's in control. That's good news. Right? Except for all of us that have control idols. Anybody else in here with me that you have control idols and you want to control everything? Right? But it's good news that we have a just and righteous king that is in control, that is moving throughout the story to make his glory known. Right? That's good news. We can rest in that. He's going to do his will and we're invited to participate for his glory and our good. We've seen how he uses uh, the ordinary and the extraordinary for his purposes. We've seen it all throughout the book of Acts, where there were earthquakes or, or, or jails being opened, right? And in this case, the jail's not being opened. It's actually through just the means of normal communication of a, of a nephew telling uh, his uncle, and then he tells the centurion, and the centurion takes the boy, and, and all of these things just seem like normal things. And yet we look at it from a, from a higher level, and we see, man, God, you're doing it. You're in control. And that's got to be good news for us today in whatever we're struggling in, right? Where we're saying, man, this, there's no way that this is good. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's a friend that you've been praying for 
that, that you haven't seen the fruit of righteousness that would, that would say that God is working salvation in their hearts? Right? Whatever it is that, that you feel is unjust, know that God is in control and he is just and he is good and you're not in control and that's good news. Second point is that, that we see is as we proclaim the truth of God's word, we will experience trials. Um, there's a piece of this that's hard, hard to share, right? We, we want to be able to say that everything's going to work out great. You're going to be healed. Your friend is going to see Jesus and know him. And yet we, we don't have, we can't say that. We don't know. We're not in control. But God is in control. But as we proclaim these truths that God is, is good and we proclaim the truth of his word that you need a savior, we're going to experience trials. And so to get through those trials, we have to go back to this underlying identity, this underlying truth, the priority that we have as witnesses that God has redeemed us, that we are children of the Most High. I want to look at two verses of Scripture, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 28 two passages. It says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Remember this is Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You see, Paul has this uh, understanding that trials are going to come. And he has them because he's experienced them. Right? And we've experienced them too. We know that uh, things don't always work out just because we have been praying and reading the word. And yet, we also know that that identity that we have as a child of God carries us through those, those suffering moments. You see, the whole world is suffering because of one man's sin, right? Adam's sin. We read it in, in Romans that because of one man's sin, there's, we now live in a broken and fallen world. And it's destructive, and we see it in the way that people are just treat people badly and, and some of the atrocities that are done. And so we know that we live in a sinful world, and yet... Just like through one man's sin, we live in a broken world. Through one man's righteousness, we will one day stand before God and be redeemed. And he's redeeming all of these things for his glory. So because of what Jesus has done, we can rest that he is coming again. And he will set all things new and right. In the meantime, we take our identity as a son and daughter of God and we, we, we proclaim who he is. Philippians 2, 14 through 18 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life 
so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And and this is the part that, that struck me as we've been reading about Paul's life. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Even as we see the story of Paul's life, how he's wrongly accused, how uh, not every time is he delivered from being beaten, right? There's many times where he's beaten. There's, there's times where they've almost killed him. There's times where he's been shipwrecked. There's times where he's been flogged. All of these things are true. And yet he clings to this hope that he has that even if, even if he's poured out, it would be for God's glory. The church may know him, believe in him, be redeemed by him. And so the last thing that we're left with is right out of Philippians 2.18. It says, be glad and rejoice. So we, we can believe and trust that God is sovereign and that he's in control. We can understand the truth that if we're proclaiming Jesus, there's going to be, whether, whether we're proclaiming him or not, there's going to be trials in this world. There's going to be suffering in this world. What's the difference between us and everybody else? How we suffer. Do we suffer as one who trusts in the almighty hand of God that he is working all things for his glory and our good? Or do we try to control those things and manipulate those things and change them? And then the last thing is be glad and rejoice. Be glad that these things are true. Rejoice in them. God fulfills his promises. You see, we believe that Paul is going to Rome, and it's God who's taking him there. It's not Paul working all these things out. It's God's plan, his sovereign plan to move him to Rome. And all along the way, he testifies to the resurrection of Jesus. He knows that Christ is victorious, and he knows, and we too have that same promise of resurrection, that God is coming again, that he's going to restore all things right, that he's going to make all things new. And so in the process, we get to participate. We get to proclaim that. We get to tell everyone, it's okay. What you see now, it's not going to last. There's going to come a better day. And it can come today in the person of Jesus as he rests and as his presence is with us. This morning, we want to believe that to be true. We pray that God would stir that gift of gladness and rejoicing in our hearts, even if we're in the midst of suffering, even if there's a lot of circumstances going on. I pray that God would remind us again of who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your word. God, it's sweet, and we get to celebrate who you are because of what you've done on the cross by your son. Lord, even as we move into a time of communion, I pray that we would wrestle with those things that um, the opposites of what we've just said to be true and good. Lord, we we believe that you're sovereign and in control, and yet we want to control and we want to manipulate and we want to do all these things, and there's no rest there. God, we we know that it's true that the whole world is suffering, but we just want comfort. We just want a little bit of rest. We just want a a respite. And so, Lord, we just pray that um, you would stir our hearts to believe that it's okay that there's suffering because there's one who has come and suffered and died in our place. Lord, and, and then to be glad and to rejoice, Lord, is contrary to where we would normally be in the midst of suffering. We would we'd be downcast, and yet you tell us to be glad and rejoice for what you're doing. So, Lord, we pray that these things would be true in our hearts. 
Help us to, um, to remind each other, to encourage one another, to build each other up. Help us to come to your word, to read the truth of your word, to be encouraged so that we can go out and live bold lives in this identity that you've given us as witnesses of the one true God. Pray that we would proclaim it loud and clear, Lord. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace towards us. In your name we pray. Amen.